Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. It's entitled, Our Apostolic Identity. It's important that we understand that it is important, vitally important, what you believe about God, about life, about the Word of God, about having a relationship with Him. It's done, that particular activity that's so important, having a relationship with God is done in so many different ways across this planet Earth. Uh, There are so many different uh, interpretations of how to please God that's out there. There's so many different opinions about really what the Word of God says and how to obey it. And uh, I have for myself chosen to try to believe in the holy, inerrant, without error, divinely inspired word of the Almighty God that I believe created the universe. He has expressed himself to us in a very peculiar, very particular defined way, and that is his written word. The Greek word for that word in the New Testament is the logos. And the logos is God's expression of himself to us. It's what he wants us to know about him and about what he thinks, about his mind. And uh, it, it seems strange to me that there are so many different ways of looking at what he said to us in the Bible and coming up with, across humanity, so many different ways of understanding what he said because there's a lot of disagreement over what the Bible says. But the Scripture says of itself that the Scripture is of no private interpretation. But it was written not by men. It was physically written on parchment or whatever they used to record writing in those days in Bible times by men, but they were simply the recorder. Those men that wrote the books of the Bible were nothing more than, I probably shouldn't use that phrase, they were men of God. But really, when you think about it regarding the Word of God, they were nothing more than uh, typing secretaries, if you will, to use a modern term. They simply wrote what God told them to write. which is what he wanted them to write because it's what he wanted to say to all of mankind. So I went through in the very first lesson, uh, if you weren't able to attend that, I encourage you to watch it on Facebook or get the CD, how we got to where we are today in Christianity with a multitude of flavors of Christianity with so many different denominations and sects, S-E-C-T-S, and so many different groups, and they all don't believe it the same way. Now, a lot, a lot of Christian groups, denominations, are very similar in, in some of the things that they believe the Bible says and, and what it means and what God is saying, but there's a vast array of differences as well. And you see on the screen there this line of blue people. That represents all the different groups in Christianity. There's one that stands out different from all the rest in name, not just name only, but in practice and in what we believe the Bible says. And that is a group called apostolics. And... uh, I know some people have problems with titles or names. If you don't like the word apostolic, I'm sorry. I kind of like it because it's very zeroed in on its meaning. And that is uh, people, Christians, who believe the Word of God just like the apostles 
believed God. And it was the apostles who wrote the books of the New Testament. And so uh, I don't mind being called an apostolic and doing it the way they did it, believing it the way they believed it. The Scripture said in Acts chapter 2, right after the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost and the church began in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, it says, they that gladly received his word. Somebody tell me who he is. Whose who's word? No. Peter. Peter preached a sermon after the Holy Ghost fell. They were worshiping the Lord with the Holy Ghost outpouring fresh upon them in an upper room. And I believe that most likely, now this is not in the Bible, but most likely in order for the next verses after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to be true, I believe that likely the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and what happened to that group of, it started out with 120 Believers, followers of Jesus, they went back into the city of Jerusalem after he had told them to do so, to wait for the promise of the Father, which I will send to you, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And there was 120 in the room when it first happened, but on that same day, they must have, what was going on in that room, must have spilled out of that room downstairs. They were in an upper room. It must have been a pretty big room for 120 people to be in it. But the commotion that was caused by receiving the Holy Ghost, and uh, I don't know about you, but I've seen people get some Holy Ghost, get the Holy Ghost for the first time and got pretty excited. Some of you may even have done that. can't remember, Brother Jeff, were you excited when you got the Holy Ghost? I remember you were beating on the altar over at the old building. God, give me the Holy Ghost! Not really the best way to pray for it, but you know what? God knew your heart, and he gave it to you. New Year's Eve night, right? 1995. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, better watch that. We're telling how old we are. I was there. Um, but when the Holy Ghost moved on that 120 people, and somehow, some way, people passing by heard it and then watched it, they even said these folks are drunk, and Peter stood up, and uh, that was his text. Actually, that was the prelude. That was, you know, preacher, Brother Wright, you know this. When we preach a sermon, we're supposed to have a good introduction to introduce our thought. At least that's what they tell you. Peter's introduction for that first sermon, and I guarantee you he didn't have any notes, and it was 100% God-inspired sermon. He said, these are not drunk as you suppose. And I think there's a double meaning to what he said there. One way to take it is they're not drunk like you think, you know, you think they're drunk, they're not drunk. But the other way you could take that is these are not drunk as you suppose. They are drunk, but it's a different kind of drunkenness than what you're thinking about. And then he took his text from the Old Testament book of Joel, and he said, Joel chapter 2, he said, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel, and then he started quoting Joel. And he said, uh, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And uh, upon my servants, upon my handmaidens, will I pour out my spirit. And, and he went on to preach Jesus he said, uh, Jesus, and he told them they crucified Jesus. So, so there were people who were gathered, a crowd, and it said at the end of that sermon, they asked him, these men said, what must we do? And it doesn't have the words to be saved in there, but it might as well have because he turned to them and said, Acts 2.38, we quoted it last time, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this promise is unto you, to your father, or, uh, to, uh, to your sons and daughters, to those that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call, which means it's for everybody. Then this verse comes up. Then they that gladly received Peter's word did what? They were baptized. The same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. 
And they, who, the 120, then the 3,000 souls, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, all four of these items that are highlighted in yellow are important. I've been focusing on the apostles' doctrine because that is the basic foundation of New Testament relationship with Jesus, doing it the way the apostles did it. As we said in an earlier lesson, the Lord spent, Jesus, when he was on our spent at least three and, and a half years with these 12 men telling them what they were to do, what they were to preach, what they were to teach, that they were to baptize and how they were to baptize during that three and a half years. And when he ascended back into heaven and they went back into Jerusalem, the Holy Ghost was poured out, church began. They began to preach to people just what he told them to. And so what they preached and what they practiced and what they commanded people to do to be saved is called the Apostles' Doctrine. And so an apostolic church is generally one, not always, but usually one that believes the Apostles' Doctrine, their doctrine especially toward salvation. Now, what did they believe? I went over some of this last time. They believed the new birth, which Jesus told Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to him at night because he didn't want to be seen going to see Jesus by his fellow Pharisees. And he asked Jesus, you know, he said, we know, Rabbi, you're come from God because nobody can do these things, these miracles that you do, except they do it. You know, only God can do it. And, uh, Jesus began to talk to him, and he, he said to him some pretty strong words. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus scratched his head and said, you know, am I supposed to crawl back up into my mother's womb? Excuse my words, but and come back out the second time. That's basically what he asked Jesus. And Jesus said, no, no, I'll clarify. You must be born again in two parts, of the water and of the spirit. Jesus told us, I read the scripture last time, or he told his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so the apostles went forth and they preached that new birth message that Jesus introduced to Nicodemus. And they told people to repent. They told people to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We talked last time about how there is nobody in the Bible ever baptized in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's why I've said it in this pulpit with this microphone. It may have offended some people. Uh, if you know of anyone that's been offended, please apologize to them for me. I've made the statement. If, if you got baptized in the titles, you really were just getting wet. That's kind of harsh. But let me tell you something. Not only is it true, hell is hot and eternity is long. We might as well tell it like it is. Uh, and that's probably perhaps a little bit rude way of putting it, but maybe it'll, I don't know whether it was from God or not when I said it, maybe it'll wake somebody up and get them to believe. If I've only been baptized in the titles and he says I was just getting wet, then what am I supposed to do? Because the Bible says to be baptized. It says baptism is necessary, water baptism. They only baptized when they baptized people, and they baptized all their converts in the name of Jesus, some form of the name of Jesus, just like Peter commanded. He said, be baptized, every one of you. If you want your sins washed away, if you want to be saved, in the name of Jesus Christ. So they taught the new birth. That's probably the most important uh, thing that they preached and taught as they went everywhere spreading the gospel and preaching. This is probably the most important thing they preached, although these items aren't necessarily in order. The second thing that they taught and preached and believed and preached it because they believed it was the oneness of God. Uh, let me say this. Oneness as we interpret it, as we think of it, they really didn't think about it like that. Uh, we have to think about it looking back through history 
with the weight of the false doctrine of the Trinity compared to what really is true, what we apostolics actually believe, which is that God is one. So our understanding of the oneness has been framed from the Word of God, yes, first and foremost, but, but our understanding and, and what we have learned about who God was and that He was one, you've got to remember, is, is, has been affected by, it's almost been, it has evolved over the years kind of in a defense against the false doctrine of the Trinity, the idea and the teaching, and I went through uh, some of that in detail, how that came to be in the last lesson, uh, that God is uh, three separate, distinct, that means different, means when you look at them, you see them, three visible apparitions, three persons, coexistent, and here's a false one, but Trinitarians believe it. It's in the Trinitarian Creed. Co-eternal. I explained how the Son, the flesh of God, had a beginning. It was when he, he was conceived in Mary's womb. Now, Jesus existed as God in heaven before he was born, but he didn't exist as the Son of God until he was placed in Mary's womb when God moved by the Holy Ghost on her womb physically for her, one of her eggs to become uh, an embryo, to kind of be technical about it. Uh, it's kind of, here's, here's one of the interesting things that you can tell a Trinitarian uh, why you don't believe in the Trinity, uh, because if you believe in the Trinity, then you have to believe that Jesus had two fathers, because they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, the Father, our Heavenly Father, we sang about Him. Obviously, He's the Father of the Son, right? But the, the, the Scripture also says that that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Ghost. So you got two fathers if you believe the Trinity. Two fathers for Jesus. And we know that can't be, can it? So, just talking a little bit about the oneness of God. Coexistent Trinitarian doctrine, co-eternal, that means they will always be around, but the flesh of God had a beginning. Uh, and now, let me say this too, and Trinitarians will not deny this, not if they know the church world and the Trinitarian Christian world, they won't deny this. Across Christianity and the groups that believe in the Trinity, they believe it differently as you go from group to group. Some of them, uh, now there's a lot of similarities, and a lot of them believe it pretty much the same, maybe 80, 90%, but some of them disagree on certain points. For example, I uh, have in my files uh, the text from a sermon. You may have heard me bring this to you before from uh, Dr. W.A. Criswell, who was, uh, he's dead now, but years ago, was pastor of the largest Baptist church in Dallas, Texas, First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas. He pastored that church for many, many years. He served as the, whatever they call it in their denomination, general superintendent, the head guy in the Southern Baptist Association, which is the largest by far Baptist group organization in the world, has been for decades. He was the president for several years. In this sermon that I have in my files that he preached, and it was in a book that he wrote, well, it was a book of his sermons, very good orator, very good preacher. Uh, I've, heard some, I've heard some Baptist folk really preach some good sermons. I've used some of their ideas in my own sermons. Shh, don't tell anybody. Uh, but just because someone's a good orator doesn't mean they're always telling the truth. In the sermon that he preached one day at the First Baptist Church in Dallas, he told his congregation of uh, several thousand that day. He said, those of you, and he may have been on television, so if so, he was preaching to others on radio. He knew that was listening to him outside the scope of his local church. He said, those of you that believe 
that when you get to heaven, you're going to see three thrones, and you're going to see three different distinctive persons of God. Now, this is the this is the president of the largest Baptist Trinitarian denomination in the world. He's full-blooded Trinity. He says, if you believe you're going to see three thrones and you're going to see the Father on one throne and Jesus on another throne and the Holy Spirit on a third throne, which, by the way, I don't know why there would even be a third throne because a spirit you can't see. Would it be an empty throne? I, I don't know. There's another dart at the Trinity Doctrine. Uh, the Trinity Doctrine was started years, decades, 100 years and more after the apostles passed off the scene. It's not in the Bible. He said, if you think that's what you're going to see when you get to heaven, three thrones, three different beings on those thrones, then I've got news for you. You're wrong, and I'll tell you why you're wrong. Because the Bible says John saw on the Isle of Patmos when God pulled back the curtain and let him see the one throne in heaven. There was only one, and he that sat upon the throne, John only saw one manifestation of God, and who did he see sitting on that throne? Apostolic Pentecostals? Jesus Christ. And John knew it was Jesus because he'd seen him before. He was in his glorified state, in his glorified body, King of kings and Lord of lords, sitting on the one throne, the only throne heaven's going to have, but John knew who he was and recognized him. That was from Baptist pastor, president of Southern Baptist Association, Dr. W.A. Criswell. Now, um, I don't really believe in getting in debates with people over doctrine because anytime you're debating someone you're really wasting your time, at least with that person, because uh, their, their heart is not going to be in a condition to receive anyway because they're trying to defend what they believe, which is different from what you believe. So I don't really go in for debates. I think they're educational, and you can learn from them. Uh, Brother David Bernard, who is the general superintendent, overseer, if you will, of the organization denomination to which this church belongs to, the United Pentecostal Church International, uh, their headquarters are in St. Louis. This church has been a, a part of this organization since about 1960, just a few months after it started in 1959. Where I grew up in Memphis, the church that I was a part of my, practically my whole life is in the United Pentecostal Church International. Uh, Brother Bernard, Dr. Bernard, um, he actually has a law degree, is probably in the top... Uh, five of the smartest individuals that I've ever known about in my life. And he has, you can go on YouTube and see him debating Trinitarians about different subjects. And the oneness is, is one of them. Wrote an entire book on the subject, The Oneness of God. It's a fascinating book. I encourage you to get it. One of the secretaries in the office can order it for you if you uh, need some help ordering it from uh, the Publishing House, which is also in St. Louis. I encourage you to read Brother Bernard's book on oneness. He explains it, even though he's very intelligent, what he, he speaks and writes is on a very basic elementary level that anybody can understand. And I encourage you to learn more about the oneness and why it actually is what the Bible teaches and what the apostles believed and what they taught. To them, uh, the Trinity would have been a completely foreign concept and idea. They, they wouldn't have understood it. Uh, of course, we've, you know, dealt with it all of our lives, so we've come to understand it. The next thing that was on the list that was an obvious, obvious, huge, critical part of the apostles' practice, living for God, believing and teaching, was prayer. Prayer. Uh, it was vitally essential Again, prayer was something that they modeled and they lived, and I really believe this. I can't give you scripture for this, but in reading all that I've read in the Bible and what, what people have written about the Bible, I really believe in my own mind and in my own heart that the disciples, and at least for the first hundred years in their generation, 
until the last of the 12 apostles passed away. I really believe that they didn't have to teach about prayer. I think everybody just did it. Think about it. 2,000 years ago, the world was a much different place. You didn't have all the distractions. And uh, there were a few, but the temptations that the enemy has to use at his advantage in his toolbox today, so much going on. Our, our lives are lived at such a fast, hurried pace. And so many things uh, try to vie and compete for our time. And, and to have really... To have the kind of prayer life that the apostles and I believe just everyday common members of the early church had uh, it would be difficult for most people today and really would be a sacrifice. I, because I'm a full-time employee of the church, I have more time than every one of you who have to go work a job to give to prayer, and I think that's the way it ought to be. But, but I think that everybody in the church in those days in the apostles' days, prayed a lot. And according to the teachings, especially of the apostle Paul, I believe they prayed a lot in the Spirit. So prayer was a part of the apostles' uh, identity. And then uh, we have ministry. Ministry. Uh, there were, I believe, very few, uh, they didn't have pews, whatever you want to call them, seats. Warmers, pew warmers, bench sitters in the New Testament church. I believe that ministering, letting God flow through a person to proclaim the gospel and be used by God to build the kingdom of God in whatever way God gifted or uh, talented them to do, I believe it, it like prayer, was, was the norm. Again, they didn't have as many uh, modern distractions that we have to ministry, just like there are to prayer. Uh, they had their temptations, I'm sure. And there were people, I'm sure, who backslid and, and who lost out with God. But uh, you, you can't read the Bible or historians who wrote about Christians that were there without getting the full sense. You're convinced that they lived for God with everything they had, that they really loved God with all of their being, with, with their time and their money and their energy and their heart and their understanding and how they lived their life. Think about it. Many, many thousands upon thousands of Christians in, throughout, well, uh, starting with just a few weeks after the day of Pentecost, for from then until now, but especially in those early years, many gave their lives for God. They were martyrs for the cause of Jesus Christ because they were told, you quit believing this or quit telling it, either or, or we're going to take your head off, or we're going to feed you to lions in the Colosseum, or we're going to crucify you, or whatever means of torture and then death was imposed depending on where in the world it was at the time. And they did it by the thousands upon thousands. So uh, I, I look at the church today, and I, I, I wonder sometimes what God thinks about us when we think it's such a sacrifice to invite someone to church or to go out of our way to spend some of our time on doing something for the kingdom of God which most of the time equates to some activity in or through or around a local church. In other words, being involved in church and its ministries. I wonder what God thinks of us sometimes in our attitude uh, that some people have. And I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I think it's probably a problem across the entire church, uh, the entire apostolic church, at least here in America, maybe in other countries, I don't know. And finally... They believed in separation from the world. Paul especially taught these things, and Peter. They mentioned holiness, being separated from the world in uh, several areas, in our thoughts, in our appearance. He said, uh, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. He said, I've called you out. Um, so 
Let's look at the apostles' ministry uh, a little bit further before we go in a different direction. Ephesians 4.11 says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, this is called uh, by some people the five-fold ministry. Five-fold ministry. Uh, in the beginning, it's documented, well documented by history, that everybody proclaimed the gospel. It wasn't until, now the apostles were obviously the leaders in the church, but uh, I don't know if you remember, I alluded to this, made a couple of statements about this last week in talking about what the church evolved into, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, and over a thousand years, uh, the, the discrepancies of the Catholic Church with the Bible and things that they started that were obviously not taught by the apostles and were not biblical or scriptural, uh, from uh, sprinkling, baptizing infants to indulgences to get your sins washed away instead of repenting for uh, and even confessing to a priest, to another man. The Bible says that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. But after the apostles, then you have prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. Uh, and, and look at what it says they are for. God gave these five different ministries uh, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, if you read that, this is a King James Version. If you read that, it's not, uh, you, you don't get a very important point in these two verses that's borne out in verse 12. It's easy to miss this point, but you see it in the Amplified translation. And again, the Amplified, before you read it without me being able to read it. The Amplified, there are different kinds of translations and versions of the Bible, particularly over the last 50 years. There have been dozens have been written. Before that, not so many, just, just uh, a couple of dozen. But beginning with the last 50 years, you have now many dozens of different kinds of translations and versions and paraphrases. Uh, anybody here ever heard of the Living Bible? I've got one somewhere. Well, I do on my reading uh, on my phone or computer or tablet now. But uh, I had a living Bible. I like uh, reading it sometimes because of the, uh, it gives you a different slant on maybe what it is you're trying to read. But did you know that the living Bible is actually, it's not from the inspired ancient manuscripts that the King James and some other versions were taken from and, and interpreted from. It's called a paraphrase. The Living Bible is written by one man who set out, I believe in the early 70s, either late 60s or early 70s. He came out with the first one. A man wanted to rewrite the Scripture, the, the entire Bible, so that his children could better understand it. And so as such, it's not inspired divinely uh, you can't take it as being the uh, inspired word of God it's a paraphrase does it help you learn a little bit maybe about what the Bible is saying in a particular verse that maybe the King James is a little bit difficult to understand yeah it can do that so you have to be careful in what you read then there are translations and there are versions a translation is an actual uh, writing of the Scripture from the ancient manuscripts. I, I don't know, but I, I think I've actually run into some people in Pentecost in the apostolic ranks who believed that the King James Version was what the apostles actually wrote when they wrote the New Testament. They did not. They wrote what they wrote, and the scriptures were copied from generation to generation down through decades of time. You have the Greek manuscripts, uh, and then 
The King James was written, King James Version was written in uh, the 1600s, the early part of the 17th century, commissioned by the King of England to write a translation in English. And uh, so that's where we get the King James Version was. I tell everybody when I start the first lesson of a Bible study, everybody believes something. You just got to. Everybody's going to, you're going to believe something, even if you're an atheist and believe there is no God. And so everybody, to believe something, has to base what they believe on something. That basis for what you believe is called the authority, the basis of authority. Christianity, as a Christian, our basis of authority is the Bible. We believe it is the Word of God that is divinely inspired, every word in it. And the King James Version, almost all Christian Bible scholars believe, is the version that was translated from ancient manuscripts. Uh, the closest to the original. And so uh, I just believe, we believe, you know, that, that it is the Word of God Himself. So when you, when you go to other versions or translations, you have to understand uh, versions actually translate. And Brother Matt covered this very uh, well in a, Brother Matt Smith in a, a lesson he did one Sunday on versions and translations. But you have to understand that a version is a translation of the Scripture into English word for word. So it's going to be more correct and more verifiably accurate than a translation, which is going to be simply a rewriting in English, not of each word, but the thoughts. Okay? Now, whether they're called a version or translation, you have to, to find out the history of a, a translation or version to know which it is. The NIV, New International Version, it's got, it's written great, came out in the 70s. I was in Bible college at the time. I remember my college uh, instructor said, I have studied and I have found no discrepancies between it and the King James Version. Well, lo and behold, he was wrong, and he actually left the apostolic church and went into some denomination that believes things that aren't true. Uh, there are some discrepancies in the NIV, and you have to understand that, uh, because it is a translation of phrases and not word for word. But the Amplified, I'm finally going to get to it and let you read it is, like the King James Version, a translation from the ancient manuscripts, word for word. It's the most accurate kind. How did Paul say it as translated in the Amplified Version? God's gifts were varied. He himself appointed and gave men to us, some to be apostles, which are also called special messengers, some prophets or inspired preachers and expounders, some evangelists, preachers of the gospel, traveling missionaries, some pastors, shepherds of his flock, and teachers. And there are some Bible scholars that believe that pastor and teacher actually was, was one ministry, but some believe it's two separate ones. I think a pastor ought to be able to teach, but anyway, whether it's one or two, he went on to say his intention, God's intention for giving us this fivefold ministry to the church was for the perfecting and the full equipping of the saints his consecrated people, watch this, the yellow bold says that they should do the work of ministering toward building up Christ's body. Uh, one of the churches, I don't know if it's Laodicea or Thyatira, I know it's not Philadelphia, I should have looked it up, but one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, remember Jesus in his appearance to John said, I want you to write, a letter to each of the seven churches that were physical, literal churches in Asia Minor at that time. But they also represented different uh, conditions of the church to be found at different locations at different times over the last 2,000 years. Uh, he told the church at Laodicea, you're lukewarm. 
I prefer you're hot or cold. He said, you better get hot before I spew you out of my mouth. He said that to the church at Laodicea. Um, one of the churches, again, I don't remember which one, he reprimanded very strongly because they held to the belief of a group called the Nicol Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, however you want to say it, N-I-C-O-L-A-T-I-A-N-S. These were a group of Christians who taught the doctrine of a distinct separation between the clergy and the laity, between the preachers and the lay people in the church. This actually developed into what the Catholic Church broadly expanded on, I mean hugely, to a hierarchy of leadership that went from a pope to cardinals to bishops to priests, and I don't know if I'm leaving one level out or not, one or two levels. And Jesus told John, write in your letter, I am against you, whichever church it was of the seven, because you hold to the belief of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that God gave us the fivefold ministry to provide leadership and encouragement to build up the church in different ways, uh, but not to be, not so that the clergy or the preachers could be an elite class at a level uh, above the lay people. Now, God did institute the concept that has been in existence and he put at, since he put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said the man is to be the leader, the wife is to be submitted to her husband. Paul preached that in Ephesians chapter 6. And I've talked about that before. That's, that's talking about the fact that God has a hierarchy in his system of authority. It's to recognize the importance of authority. And that's very important to God. But God didn't give us preachers so that we could be Lord over the saints. He gave us preachers for protection. He gave us pastors for spiritual protection. And being submitted to authority... The authority of a spiritual shepherd, a pastor, is being safe. It's, it's putting yourself under the umbrella of God's protection. And people who do not want to submit to spiritual authority are taking themselves out from under the protection of God. Now, does God completely abandon them? No. But I can't tell you how many people that I've seen rebellious in the church over the years here and back in Memphis who could not submit to a pastor and they paid a dear price for it. So, here's the thing. God hated that whole concept, not because the preachers don't have a different ministry than the laity, but he hated it because it evolved into, and, and it's remained in Christian circles for hundreds and hundreds of years, a state of existence where in a lot of church groups, in a lot of denominations, the lay person, the lay people are told, oh, you leave the ministering up to the preachers. That is not God's plan. That's not God's will. And God doesn't like that. This verse here proves that he gave the preachers to the church so that they could equip the saints to go out and do the ministering of the church. So I really went a long way around the horn to tell you that it is the will of God and it is a part of what the apostles believed and wrote and practiced that everybody should be involved in ministry. And that's what I'm going to close with tonight in talking about that. Uh, there are really two functions of the church. One is to win new people, go into all the world and preach the gospel making disciples of them. Number two, to disciple those that are saved, to teach them, to root them and ground them in the truth, in doctrine. Uh, New Testament says doctrine is profitable for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. Doctrine is not a dirty word. It's not something to be shunned. Uh, it's important. But 
these two functions of the church combine to create what we're called to do, which is to minister. So every one of us is equipped by God with abilities, with talents, with personalities, with ways that we're, I don't know another word to use. And when I say talent, I don't mean a talent like we humans love to do, put it on a showcase, like playing an instrument or singing. You know, you say, I don't have a voice that can sing. I can't play a musical instrument. Uh, I'm not a good speaker, so maybe uh, speaking, public speaking isn't what I'm supposed to do. That may be true. You may not have any of those three talents, but God gave every one of us, every human being. The Bible says every part of the body is important, right? I've been teaching on that the last two Sundays. And God expects every one of us to be involved in the functioning of his body, which is reaching the lost and then discipling them and helping them to grow. And by the way, we should continue to be discipled until we're raptured out of here or we die because we always should grow. That's why you always need to uh, be taught and study the Bible. So people who come to church, we come to attend public worship services. We come in those, service to, in those services to participate in singing, in worship, and in prayer. We uh, give financially. This is biblical. God tells us to do this. It's an important part of our relationship with him. And we are to be involved in ministry. Okay, how do I do that, Pastor? And I'm closing with this. There are several ways you can do it. I've put some of them, but not all of them, on the slide. We can invite people to church, and these are not necessarily in order of importance. We can be involved in teaching the Word of God. One of the areas for that that's very important is teaching children, not only children but teenagers and adults, and we do that in Sunday school, teaching Bible studies. This can be done in homes and schools, at workplaces. Uh, I've taught many Bible studies here in the church building itself, uh, in coffee shops, in restaurants. It's teaching the Word of God. It's very important. This is, uh, th there are two things that are a part of ministry. And I didn't put them on the slide. I should have. Forgive me for not doing so. It is an allegory or compared to the natural realm of bringing forth fruit or harvest, you have to do two things. What? Number one, you have to sow or plant seed. And number two, you have to do the other stuff to make the seed grow into a proper plant, tree, whatever that will produce fruit. You do that by watering. You do that by fertilizing. You do it by modern methods using insecticide. To, In other words, you kind of keep away the enemies of the plant that would try to destroy the plant. And spiritually, we do the same thing. We sow the seed of God, which is the Word of God. And for any local church to be in the will of God and to be involved doing that, sowing the seed, getting the Word of God out among the lost, it cannot be limited to just the pulpit twice a week in church services. That will not get the job done. God didn't say go forth and build local church buildings from which you are to preach. He said go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're not going to get everybody here. Teaching Bible studies, teaching the Word of God is something that far more people in most local churches can do than what are doing it, and that's true for this church, and far more people can do it than what think they're even able to do it. And that's true in this church. So uh, very soon I'd like to have a, a Bible study motivation slash instructional time, uh, two or three nights, perhaps on a weekend when we bring somebody in to help us with that. I think it's time, Brother Jeff, you re remind me to get on the horn and let's get that involved. But I want you to be helping me pray about that. At least half of you can teach a Bible study. Let me, let me ask you this. How many of you have taught a Bible study to somebody, whether one lesson or 
10 lessons or whatever, raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you have done it in the last 12 months? Raise your hand. Okay, big difference between those two, right? We got work to do, Calvary. I'm just telling you what God wants you to hear. Working in vacation Bible school, working in outreach activities, um, our uh, ministry planning council, the leadership, leaders of various departments of ministry at this church, we've been discussing the last couple of meetings about ways that we can do that more than what we're doing now. Um, the old uh, standby of Saturday afternoon door knocking, cold call outreach has been documented statistically. It is one of the worst you can do to bring forth results. It's one of the worst ways to invest your time. I still would love for people to do it at this church if somebody's interested in going door knocking on Saturday because any kind of outreach, God's going to bless the effort, and, and we may reach somebody. But there are much more intimate in our society circles and associations and, and ways of doing that, and we'll be bringing some more of those to the church in the near future of how you can be involved in some of those things. Driving a van or other vehicle to provide transportation for people to come to church who need it. All these ministries are important. Like I said, they're not necessarily in order of importance. Just interacting with unsaved people, that's so important. You can't witness to somebody you don't interact with. I go to a gym uh, uh, two or three times a week, the YMCA. They've moved from downtown out here where the old Presbyterian church used to be next to Ameren. And uh, I've already got on my prayer list six or seven men that I have introduced myself to and just chatted with and started up conversations. When I see them, I say hi. Sometimes I get off to the side and we talk about the Cardinals or whatever comes to mind. And I'm praying God give me a Bible study with some of these or all of these men. You know people who are unsaved you can interact with. That's what God wants us to do. We got to do it to reach them. You can be involved in ministry by uh, serving in leadership, in hospitality. That's being involved in dinners and, and fellowships. We, we sometimes put on funeral dinner, dinners for bereaved families of church members, uh, as well as the ladies do this. Uh, we have our, now our fourth or last Sunday of the month, hospitality time out in the foyer, things uh, related to that. Benevolent, what's that mean? What's that involve? Money means giving. And everybody can give no matter what our economic status may be. God understands that if you don't have it to give, you can't give it. But uh, that is a ministry in the church, giving to needs, financial needs. And every once in a while, we may ask for uh, donations for special needs. Serving as a greeter, uh, serving as a host for a small group. Now, this church... Uh, we disbanded small groups when COVID hit, and our leaders have been talking about it. I've been praying about starting them up again. We may or may not do that, still waiting for the Lord to direct us. Uh, if we do, it's, it's highly likely that it will be different than the way we did it instead of meeting every week. So you help us be praying about that. But those groups has to have somebody to lead them, and being a leader of a small group is important. Just a few more maintenance activities. The church cannot be maintained without somebody to do it. We appreciate the men, usually men, but ladies help too, that are involved in that. Praying with people in the altar. I told you these weren't in order of importance. This is one of the most important, as is praying for lost souls, as is just praying. Praying is something. All right, everybody listen. I know some of you are, I'm losing some of you, I can tell. I'm done. Sister Edwards, go ahead and come. Uh, I got two more slides and their pictures are... What I'm about to say is very important. I've heard down through the years, I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, I'm old enough now that I can't do it like the young people or like I did when I was younger. That may be true. And let's just face it, this church has as a mean or average age, it, it's, it's higher than what it was in the past. That means we have several senior citizens, that's what I'm saying of which I'm one. There's nothing wrong with that. 
I know God wants to add young people and, and young adults and, and all ages to this church and every church. But don't say, I can't, regardless of what other ministry activities around here you can't do, never say, I can't be involved in prayer. Because everybody can pray. There are elderly saints in this church that cannot physically make it to Monday night prayer every Monday, but they pray in their home. And they're involved in the prayer ministry. We are out of the will of God when we don't pray and let God pray through us in the Spirit. Listen, folks, let's stand together. Our world needs us. Would you stand with me tonight? We're done. Our world needs us to be apostolics or apostolic. There are people dying every day, going to hell. They need us to stand up and tell them the truth. We don't have to do it rudely. We don't have to do it in an unkind way. But they need to be told the truth nonetheless. I told somebody, somebody quit coming. We were working with a particular individual, uh, one of the precious ladies in our church uh, at at the nursing home. uh, And they were teaching Bible studies to the nursing home residents. And there was one lady that we were going to baptize, said she wanted to be baptized. She changed her mind. And quit coming. And I I told this precious saint who was so disappointed. She was just so dejected. I said, listen, sister. Over the years, I've come to realize something about people that you're trying to reach. Most people, 90 plus percent, high 90 percentage, I would say, of people cannot come to an apostolic church very long without either getting in or getting out without making the commitment to believe the apostolic doctrine to believe it the way this church teaches and preaches and practices why is that because you know you can't be confronted with the truth for too long without having to make a decision it's just the nature of God's truth That's the way he designed it. Now, occasionally you'll have someone come to a church for, you know, longer, a few months or a year or two, even several years, and not really accept the apostolic doctrine. But that's very rare. And so I I told this sister, keep praying for that person. Don't give up on them. Keep talking to them. Keep loving them. my, my, My philosophy is never give up on anybody that's lost. But then go find somebody else in that nursing home that you can teach the Word of God to. There's somebody there that's hungry that will say yes, that will say, I believe it. I want to obey it the way the Bible says. I want to do it. I'm asking all of you tonight as members of this church, if you're a part of this church, to pray uh, about this. Of course, if you haven't obeyed the doctrine of the apostles, the way the Bible teaches it, I pray about that and see that you need to obey it. And if you are an apostolic, then I want, you to, I want you to pray about making sure that you are in real good and you're doing what God wants you to do. You're being involved in ministry around here the way God has gifted you and expects you to be. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm asking in this closing prayer, Lord, for you to convict us where we need it. Remind us of things we may have forgotten that once knew. Put thoughts in our minds tonight and beyond that you want to be there to encourage and motivate us to be the church that you've called us to be as a corporate body, this local church assembly. And that's going to happen, Lord, when each of us as individuals is the church member and believer. And, and, and practicer, an obedient worshiper and giver and involved in ministry all according to your will. Help us to do that, God. 
That's all I'm asking is for your will to be done in the life of every person that calls this their home church. It's so important, so very important. Not my will, and I'm the pastor, God, but I don't want my will to be done where it's different from yours regarding this. I want everybody in this church to be who and what you want them to be, first and foremost. Help us, show us where we're not, and help us to get there in your way, in your time. We thank you for it, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. How many want that to be true in your life? If it is, clap your hands as a praise for the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. Calvary Church is located at 406 North 44th Street in Mount Vernon, Illinois. Service times are Sunday school at 1 p.m. every Sunday, except the last Sunday of each month, and worship service at 2 p.m. Also, we have an all-church service at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Calvary Church is affiliated with the United Pentecostal Church International. Thank you, and have a blessed day.